week after week as we study Mark's gospel, we come face to face with the person of Jesus, the one who Mark proclaims at the very beginning of his gospel. He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We see the Christ, the promised deliverer, and the Son of God, whom we we have come to see over the weeks as we've studied Mark chapters 1 through 6 and into chapter 7. We've seen that He is the Lord God of Israel. He's the one who created and rules over all things, and He displays His power and authority in many miraculous signs and wonders. As we meet Jesus in the pages of Scripture, we have also met different responses to Him. And we will again today. Like the people in the Decapolis, the Gentile people for the most part, who praised Him. Like the Pharisees who tested Him. And like the disciples who at this point have a lot to learn about their Lord. At this point, in Mark's Gospel, the disciples have been following Jesus for months on end. They've seen and heard Him day after day. They should know this good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. They're living it after all. They still don't understand it all. They're still learning. They still don't fully grasp all that Jesus teaches them. They, like us, need Jesus to reveal Himself to them. So as we consider the Lord this morning, I would ask you, what about you? What is your response to this Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God? Turn with me to Mark's Gospel, chapter 7. And verse 31 is where we'll begin. Mark 7, verse 31. And we'll read uh, to verse 37. To the end of the chapter. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hands on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be open." And his ears were opened, his tongue was loosed, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more that he commanded them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear 
and the mute speak. In these verses, Jesus passes through Gentile territory. We saw last week that he healed this woman's daughter because she was willing to be humble, to say, yes, Lord, and to plead with him. She persisted in her faith in Jesus Christ, for she had nowhere else to turn. And Jesus then returns by a different route. He goes north through the city of Sidon and around the top of the lake of Galilee and then south again to the area of the Decapolis, which means ten cities because it was a region of ten Roman cities on the southeastern side of the lake. And so this was an area that still, all the way on the other side, southeast from northwest, is a Gentile area. And a man was brought to Jesus who was deaf and mute, or some translations say uh, have as a speech impediment. The word there reflects the fact that he can't form words properly so as to be understood. Probably could make some kinds of sounds, but not in a way that could be clearly understood. And so Jesus heals him here, and he does so in an unusual fashion. Some people suppose that Jesus was accommodating the Gentiles' uh, superstition or, or meeting them at their level by using methods they could understand, like those of their healers who might have done something similar. Other people have suggested that Jesus did this because it was just too hard to heal the ordinary way. This view seems to diminish the uh, power of Jesus, not understand who he is. But another possibility is that Jesus intended to communicate to this deaf man what he intended to do with him. How do you communicate to somebody who can't speak and can't hear? If you've ever had to do that, I have had that experience a couple of times with somebody who can't speak or hear. And it's different. You use more than words. But at the end of the day, these kinds of speculations are just uh, options, possibilities that really aren't necessary to see the Lord Jesus Christ and who he is. You see, the thing that is quite clear from this is that there's only one person and only his word that can heal this man. We know this because it was, it was at his word, Ephatha, which is translated as be opened. It's at that word of Jesus that this man was healed. And so we see the power of Christ, his power over creation, even to, to heal the human body 
these sorts of things that we can't cure. We can give a, a person a hearing aid. We can't make them hear again. Can give helps, but we can't transform someone who's deaf and mute to speak and to hear and the blind to see. And so when the people found out, they praise this one who can do this. And in many ways, they spoke greater than they knew. They didn't have the scriptures. But their praises echo the word of God. When they say he's done all things well. They spoke greater than they knew for Jesus is the word who spoke the world into existence. The God who made all things well, such that the scripture testifies he made all things in heaven and on earth, and he filled it all. And he said, this is very good. That's the testimony that's spoken of the creator. And here it's spoken of Jesus Christ. These people's words also draw our attention to the words of the prophet Isaiah, who said in Isaiah 35, verses 6 or 5 and 6, then, and this is speaking of the time when the Messiah would come, the Lord Himself. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. You see how the, that prophecy is fulfilled here? It's quite plain in what Jesus does. That he is the creator and the promised redeemer, the one who could restore creation, could save his people. He's the Christ. And so his works, of which this is one, are matchless and worthy of praise. And this is the response that we see from these Gentile peoples who, who know little, but what they saw of Jesus, they praised, saying that he had done all things, everything that they saw of him, he did well. After this miracle, we're given one more miracle of Jesus among the Gentiles that reveals Christ to us. The miracle of the 4,000 fed by Christ. Now we want to turn to Mark chapter 8, continuing where we left off. And verses 1 through 9 give us the account of this miracle. In those days, 
when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to them and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. Some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves. And having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said, that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. Now in these verses, when Mark writes, again a crowd gathered. He draws our attention to the fact that this is the second time Jesus has fed the multitudes. Many similarities can be seen. The crowds in need. Here especially, we know how how, uh, uh, in need they are. Three days without food or maybe they brought along a lunch or two. That's gone by now. And if you've got to walk. 20 miles, 30 more, and you haven't eaten for three days, you're going to be going to be famished and weak in body. Jesus sees this, and so we also see Jesus' compassion again. Over and over, the Gospels point us to the love that Jesus had for these people. This is why he came. And of course, the great provision to the degree that there's food left over. This is a theme in both accounts. And like the first miraculous meal, this too points us not just to details about this happened and that happened, but it points us to the identity of the one who could provide bread for thousands. That Jesus really is the promised Messiah, the same God who provided for Israel in the wilderness. We unpacked that more when we talked about the feeding of the 5,000. But in both of these accounts, it's very clear that Jesus is doing what only the Lord God can do. That he is the one who can create bread from just a couple of loaves. And who has come to redeem, to rescue his people, to care for their needs. So in John's 
gospel when he recounts the first feeding of the 5,000. Jesus speaks at length about the fact that he is the bread of life, the one that they need. He's the provider of all that they saw both then and here when he feeds the 4,000. And so against this backdrop of, of seeing again the power of Jesus as the creator and his coming to redeem and to help and to save, Mark goes on to tell us too, different responses to Jesus. The response of the Pharisees and then of the disciples. So we want to look at the response to the Pharisees first. And we'll continue reading verses 10 to 13 of Mark chapter 8. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. So back on the western shore, which was predominantly Jewish settlements, the Pharisees come seeking a sign. They come seeking a public proof of divine authority. Something akin to Elijah calling down fire from heaven. Although I doubt they were, would have expected something quite so dramatic. Because they come seeking a sign not because they want to believe, Not because they have some faith, but they just doubt a little bit. They come because they don't believe. And Mark tells us very plainly this when he says they came to test him. They came to test him. They came to dispute with him. To show that he was wrong. But Jesus has already displayed his authority time and time again. He's shown those with eyes to see who he is. And they don't believe not one bit, these men. So he responds with a very solemn testimony Truly I say to you, these words added weight to what he was about to say. Truly I say to you, no sign will be given this generation. Jesus will not perform for those who do not believe. Those who are hardened against him. Who stand opposed to him. Though they have met him time and time again. These men thought they could tempt God, like their master Satan who tested Christ in the wilderness. 
and like their forefathers before them in the desert, that unbelieving generation that Moses described as crooked and twisted, they too had seen God present among them. They'd seen His power. They'd seen His salvation. They had not believed. There are people like this in every generation. Making demands of God because they don't believe. Saying that they need more proof than what God has already given. Skeptics and self-righteous people are not interested in knowing the truth. They'll never be satisfied with enough proof. It's just one more thing to make fun of, to laugh about. It's only by the grace of God that any of us could see So what does Jesus do with someone like that who just will not listen, who's not there to learn, who's not willing to humble themselves before him? He leaves. He says they're not going to get what they asked for. And he left them and went to the other side. Folks, this is written for our benefit. It's written so that we would not harden our hearts to the testimony that's given of Jesus Christ in the Scriptures. We would see where pride leads. We would see that we need a Savior. That we would trust Him. So we have so far seen the Gentiles praise Christ and they speak better than they know in this. We have the Pharisees testing Christ, not believing that he is their Lord. And we have the disciples not understanding Christ. They have much to learn. And Christ will teach them. Verses 14 to 21. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out! Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact they had no bread. And Jesus Aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the... 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? 
And they said to him, seven. They got the answer right. Good for them. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Do you not yet understand? Twice before, the disciples have been at sea and they've seen the glory of Christ calm the waters and walk on the waves. Twice now, they've seen Jesus provide bread for the crowds. This third lesson on the lake begins not with a storm, but with forgotten bread. And focused on the lack of bread, the disciples don't understand Jesus when he warns them about the corrupting influence of the Pharisees and of Herod. They're thinking on a completely different level than Jesus. All they heard was bread. And where did their minds go? I forgot. Or he forgot. Instead of what Jesus was trying to teach them. Matthew and Luke tell us more about this dangerous leaven. Matthew identifies the teaching of the Pharisees and of of the Herodians. Luke identifies their hypocrisy. These things that spread, that are dangerous to us. But uh, Mark, in a way, leaves us wondering what Jesus meant. He does so because what Jesus does is he zeroes in on their lack of understanding. They, they were not listening. And so Jesus says in effect in verses 17 and 18 through his questions that they have hard hearts, that they have blind eyes and deaf ears. And by using this kind of language, you know what he's saying? He's saying that they're acting like those outside of the kingdom of God. In that, they were being hypocritical. Like the Pharisees themselves. You see, the disciples were told at the very beginning when they had been called by Jesus in Mark chapter 4.11... To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. And so they would come to Jesus and he would teach them the meaning of the parables. And they were given much that many for years, kings and prophets had longed to see and to know. They'd been given this privilege. But here they are responding like the ones Jesus described in the very next verse. Mark 4.12. For those outside, everything is in parables. So that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may hear, but not understand. This being a fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah in chapter 6. 
And so the disciples here saw the miracles. When Jesus asks about them, verses 19 and 20, they can answer with the facts. Twelve baskets, Lord. Oh, seven baskets, Lord. But they can't connect the dots and see that the Messiah who provided bread for thousands was here before them. And he was teaching them. And they weren't listening. They didn't just forget bread. They forgot the living bread who was with them. Now, amazingly, Jesus doesn't give up on his disciples. You see, there is a decisive difference between the Pharisee who plays the hypocrite and refuses to trust Jesus, to follow him, and the disciple who is called by God and follows him, but yet has much to learn and needs to be reminded again that they need to learn much, that we need the Lord to open our hearts and our minds. We need that reminder because this is us. And so Jesus doesn't leave them like he left the Pharisees. The rest of Mark's gospel, he will continue to patiently teach them. And show them that not only is he the Messiah, but that he came to suffer and to die and that they are called as his disciples. All his disciples are called to lay down their lives and follow him. And they will be taught these things. But Christ's disciples can miss Christ. We can be distracted. Thinking about cares of this world and our daily bread. Not looking to our Father in heaven who can provide. How many times have you done that? So focused on this need that I have that you don't even think, not even for a moment, to turn to him. But Christ isn't done with his disciples and he's not done with, with us today either. And so as they follow him and as we follow him, we become a people that that are not just data collectors that can recite the answers to the questions. And then it's good to know the answers. It's good to be able to remember what God's done. But that's just it. We have to remember it's the Lord. And what he is able to do. So some praised Christ, some tested Christ, and some, though they followed him, had much to learn of Christ. Where does that leave us? Well, the difference between those that are outside and those that are inside, those that are safe in the hands of Christ and those that do not 
know Him is a matter of allegiance to Jesus? Do we humbly and persistently look to Him as our only hope? Like that woman whose daughter was healed in Mark chapter 7? We can praise and acknowledge that He does all things well even as we have much to learn and we stumble and fall. Or we can reject Christ. We can put on a pretty good veneer, a pretty good appearance, but reject the Savior and receive nothing. When the Apostle Paul spoke to the church in Corinth, he warned them to heed the example of the generation in the wilderness who saw the mighty deeds of God and were delivered by God, yet they fell away. And he very well could have used the example of the people in Jesus' day who heard and who saw all these things, and yet many of them fell away. Many of them cried, crucify him. And this is what Paul concludes. He says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. We would pay attention to how we're responding to Christ. Do we come as the proud man who thinks or woman who thinks that we stand and we stand in our own strength and our own wisdom and our own giftings? Or do we know that we would not stand if it were not for Jesus Christ revealing Himself to us? As we encounter Christ in His Word, we too have much to learn. We're not exempt from missing Jesus, from being distracted by worries, too distracted to turn to Him, too sure of our knowledge to seek His wisdom. We're no less stubborn than the Corinthians. No less in need of the Spirit of God. To teach us. But. Jesus is no less our creator. And our redeemer today. Can he. Raise the dead. Can he open. The blind. Eyes and ear and the deaf ears of people's hearts and minds. Yes he can. He's the only one who can. And so today, having seen and heard him, we have the opportunity to turn and heed his voice again. Now is that time for us today. May he draw all of our hearts to worship him and say, he does all things well. Amen.